This is episode 213 of How About That Cigar, recorded live at the Corona Cigar Studio. We pay tribute to those lost on 9-11 by talking to some of the first responders who were there that fateful day. Please take a moment to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. Now on with the show. Corona Cigar Company is your one-stop shop for all your cigar needs. Whether that's a brand new humidor, a box of those new cigars you've been waiting for, a top-of-the-line cutter or lighter, a place to enjoy the finest cigars and spirits with friends, or the only cigars grown right here in the Sunshine State, we've got you covered. Come visit one of our retail locations for the ultimate cigar experience. Visit us online at coronacigar.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Corona Cigar Studios. This is episode number 213 of How About That Cigar Live. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. We are live on Facebook and live on YouTube. So if you guys would, please take just a minute, share us out to your favorite Facebook cigar groups and let everybody know that we are live. And uh, tonight is a very different show, a very special show that we have. It's not, tonight is not really, not you know, not about, not about cigars. I mean, we're going to be smoking cigars. We always do. Yep. Uh, but tonight's, uh, you know, a, a different kind of night. So we're going to, uh, you know, have some kind of important conversations on the show tonight, you know, be, because of the anniversary of uh, the September 11th attacks. Yep. And uh, we're going to talk to some great people on the show that we're very grateful to have on. Um, you know, normally at this time, we jump into a little bit of Minnesota sports talk. But because tonight is so important, we're going to bypass all that. We're going to jump right into it, right into it, uh, because we have some, like I said, we have some great special guests with a lot of important things to say. I think, uh, not to put too much pressure on them, but you know, it's it's an important night. So, yeah, uh, let's uh, get our special guests on the show. And as always, special guests on How About That Cigar Live are brought to us by our friends at Drew Estate, and the Liga Pravada Ten Selection de Mercado is handcrafted to highlight the bold characteristics of a specially curated Connecticut Criollo Kappa leaf that's grown exclusively for Drew Estate by one farmer in the famed Connecticut River Valley. The Spanish name for market selection, inspired by the old practice of selecting wrapper leaves for certain national markets by color. Drew Estate chose only the most beautiful Rosado Connecticut Criollo leaves to grace the Selección de Mercado. The Rosa uh, Rosado Capa surrounds a blend of Mexican Capote and Tripa tobaccos from Nicaragua and Pennsylvania, to create a cigar that is deeply balanced, bold, and sophisticated. The Liga Provada 10 Selección de Mercado features uh, measures 6x52 and will be available in 10-count boxes to international markets. For more information, please visit DrewEstate.com. All right, uh, so tonight, um, first thing is we were originally going to have Juan Cancel on the show tonight from Protocol, Protocol Cigars. We've had him on the show before. You guys know him and love him. Uh, he had a family obligation, and we always say it, family comes first, period. So um, we're grateful that he gets to be uh, a part of that tonight. Um, sad we can't have him on the show, but we're glad he gets to be a part of that family obligation. But um, when I was looking through the schedule for upcoming episodes um you know this is probably a couple months ago and i saw that monday because we always do the show on mondays i saw that monday landed on september 11th and right away i just felt compelled that we got to do something to um remember it to remember it exactly uh well put 
And so I reached out to a few people, one of them being Juan Cancel, and I said, I'd like to have some some people who were first responders in in various roles, you know, uh, during what happened on September 11th and the, and the aftermath, you know, in the days and weeks and months following. So Juan was great. He started working on it right away. And um, thank you, Juan, for that. Uh, reaching out to some people. Uh, so I'd like to bring them uh, on the show right now, if we could, please. So first of all, uh, let's bring on Frank. And Frank, I'm going to try to say your name, your last name. Um, Go for it, brother. Gangiadino. Gangiadino. You got it. You got yeah, it. Man. You know, are you are you Italian? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Hey, I got the, I got the <laughs> name right. Uh, and next, we're going to bring on Joe Cosentino. And I'm pretty sure I that that one's that one's a little easier. Can't screw that one up, man. What's up, Joe? Couple right, Italians from New York. Ah, forget about it. <laughs> well, and if uh, for the, those of you guys watching, how about that scar? If you don't know, Raul, our our fearless uh, co-host here, is Minneapolis Fire Department. Yes, sir. For 25? 20, 25 years. Twenty-five years, but also born and raised in New Lower York. East Side, Lower yeah. East Side of Manhattan. Yep. Yeah. My mom's still out there too. Um, so let's, let's jump in right away. Um, well, actually I, I do need to, cause I finished my pregame cigar and we were, um, Raul got us <laughs> these special cigars for tonight. And this is actually a new cigar. Uh, and it seems kind of fitting. So Raul, thank you for this. This is, uh, this is from black star line cigars, Mr. Fahrenheit. So this is the Mr. Fahrenheit, uh, Eric Bay from Black Star Line, uh, retired Chicago firefighter. Yep. Uh, so he knows, you know, he knows the job and, and, you know, being a firefighter was and is important to him. So uh, he wanted to make sort of a tribute cigar uh, for the trade and the and the the firefighting community. So I'm going to light that up right now. Um, and I think we're going to let's skip the statue tonight. We're, I'm still going to do the read. But we always, uh, I always fire up cigars for the show on the Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust Toast Cam. So when lighting your cigar, it is important to be patient, pay close attention to detail, and focus on the tobacco. In the same way, Steve Saka brings those same qualities to the ultra-premium cigars of Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust. Patience, close attention, and focus on the tobacco are the qualities that Sock and Dunbarton Tobacco and Trust have become known for. From Silver Mesa to Umbagog, Dunbarton has a blend that will fit your palate, your mood, and any occasion. Please vi visit DunbartonCigars.com to learn more. So, if you guys haven't noticed, Matt is wearing an MFD hat. And I had to look far and wide for a hat to fit his head. Yeah, that, if, if I had ever... If I had ever um been brave enough to be a firefighter they probably have to go out and like custom order you know helmets and shit for me because <laughs> i have i have a head the size of like a uh, medicine ball it's ridiculous a lot of brains in there well uh, some would disagree some would disagree um but i want to start with um each of you individually um and i'm going to start with frank um talk to us a little bit about your um, your history in, you know, working in and around New York City and how that led you into 
the unfortunate events that that uh, happened on the morning of September 11, 2001. All right. Sure. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me on the show, guys. I really appreciate that. Uh, I want to send a shout out to Juan Cancel, Portico Cigars. Lo love your cigars. So uh, let's get right to it. So, yeah, uh, the events. I uh, was hired by the uh, Corrections Department in uh, January of 1996. Uh, at the time, at about roughly five years on the job, I was uh, working for the Transportation Division. That's how I got to go to the site because we weren't assigned to a jail. So we pretty much transported inmates back and forth to court and other jails and prisons upstate and whatnot. So uh, early morning, Tuesday morning, uh, September 11th, uh, uh, I was in the Bronx with my partner. We just dropped off a couple of inmates in the court on about 161st Street. And my partner went to go get breakfast in one of the uh, Cuchifritos on 161st Street. If you're Spanish, you know what I'm talking about. They got all the uh -huh. all the Spanish food. They got, you know, you know what I'm talking about. They got the, you know, mofongo. They got all that stuff. They got breakfast. So I'm sitting there and all of a sudden over the radio on Z100, I hear the DJ saying that some commuter plane had hit the, uh, one of the uh, Twin Towers. So my partner comes out and we're driving back towards Rikers Island. I'm telling him what's happening. And, you know, as we're driving, we can see one of the buildings on fire. So by the time we got back to Rikers Island, the second plane already hit. So we really didn't get to see what was going on and what the, uh, you know, what the status was. Uh, so we got back to Rikers Island. And that same day, we were deployed to, uh, to the site. Uh, and I, I tell you, uh, something that I will never forget in my life. Uh, uh, we, we had it down, uh, towards, uh, down, downtown Manhattan with a, with a, with a, we had a whole contingent of trucks with medical supplies and emergency supplies and all kinds of stuff. And we, I remember going over the Williamsburg bridge and as we are going into Manhattan, there are thousands and thousands of people walking over the bridge, going into Brooklyn. I mean, like it was like the, this like the, the, the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. Who was crying, who was covered full of soot. And that is, that is something that I'll never, I'll never forget. Like everybody was in distress. Nobody knew what was going on, uh, you know. And, uh, you know, I found myself uh, going down to Liberty Street uh, by uh, near the water. And uh, Basically, I was deployed there for, for a few weeks, you, you know, and uh, we were doing recovery effort and stuff like that. And I tell you, I've never seen so many different law enforcement agencies from across the country coming to help. I mean, like law enforcement agencies I've, I've never even heard of in my life were there on the pile digging and, you know, uh, doing the, the bucket brigade, you know, and uh, definitely something I'll never forget in my life. Yeah. Um, Joe, talk to us about your, um, you know, sort of your career leading up to, and then what your first experiences were like that morning of September 11th, 2001. I, I became an EMT in 98. I started at a transport company, which usually takes people from nursing homes to dialysis or discharges from hospitals. Uh, that morning I happened to be working and we were listening to the radio and we were listening to hot 97 both me and my partner love hip-hop music so we had hot 97 on and one of the djs who was on the show at the time had just come back from a suspension because if you remember a few months prior to that Aaliyah died in a plane crash 
and he yeah. kind of he kind of cracked a joke about it. So they suspended him. I don't know if it was two months or three months. That morning we had the radio on, and he comes over the air and he says, "I know I've been in trouble about this in the past, but a plane had just hit the World Trade Center." So me and my partner looked at each other and went, "What idiot is flying over Lower Manhattan when it's a no-fly zone?" So we kept hearing reports. We wound up on the. I was working in Staten Island at the time. We wound up at the ferry terminal as a standby unit and literally watched the second plane hit. We made our way into lower Manhattan and just to see the devastation that was there was brutal and horrendous. I, I, we came through the Brooklyn battery tunnel and I thought we walked into a war zone. I thought we were in a third world country. Never thought I was in lower Manhattan. I, couldn't believe the devastation wow and and how how many hours was that into the day after the first plane hit i had started my shift at 5 a.m so it was the first plane hit at 8 46 yeah so three hours into the shift i didn't walk in my house that night until 12 30 a.m Basically went upstairs, took a shower, grabbed a glass of soda, sat on the couch and literally fell asleep with the glass in my hand. I was up at 2.30, took another shower, got dressed and went back into work. And then spent a good four days down at, uh, I don't call it ground zero. I'll, it'll always be the World Trade Center to me. Whether, you know, one building's up there or... The two buildings, to me, that area will always be the World Trade Center. I will never call it Ground Zero. Okay. Now, for for each of you, um, Frank, starting with you on this question again, when, what was your, I mean, you, you talked about, you know, coming over the, coming over the bridge and seeing, you know, the people walking the other way, you know, um, but when, when you got to, you know, seeing the actual carnage that was going on, what, what was one of the first things that, that you saw that still sticks in your head that you remember seeing as you, as you got onto Manhattan itself? Well, when we got to Manhattan, initially we went to Liberty Street, which was like the meeting point for everyone. It was like the the main base was Stuyvesant High School, where all the you know specialty units and everybody stood by. As a matter of fact, when we got there that day, about an hour of us being there, one of the other buildings just came down in front of us. It was the Verizon building, as a matter of fact. We were you know we were staged there waiting for instructions, and all of a sudden we hear windows crashing, the building comes down. So if you're asking when was the first time that I actually saw the World Trade Center carnage. We didn't go there that same day, but the next morning. And all I saw was it was a mountain of rubble. It didn't resemble anything like I've seen before. It, it, it was like you can't even comprehend what that happened. It, lo it looked like an atomic bomb went off, and it was rubble and twisted steel everywhere and wires and all kinds of stuff. It's, it, it was surreal. It was surreal. It's like, it, it was like you, you were like in a, in a science fiction. It was, you, couldn't, you couldn't believe it. You couldn't believe it. Yeah. 
And Joe, for you, what was what was that first thing that's that stood out that sticks with you that whether it was uh, whether it was a, a patient or or just something from the very early on stages that that sticks in your head the the rubble the twisted metal and to this day i still can't comprehend you had two buildings that had offices in it not one computer was visible not one desk not one chair it's like everything was just pulverized yeah. are those buildings coming down and it just it literally just you it's it's hard to define what it looked like, but just the rubble, the twisted I beams, like I, you know, I'm not an iron worker. I don't know about stuff like that, but I never thought in a million years that a I beam can twist the way it does. Yeah, they were twisted into pretzels, like pretzels. almost. Yeah, yeah, it was almost like. A, like a Twizzler, like a yeah, Twizzler. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And not thin metal. You're talking about I-beams twisted like a Twizzler. Like, yeah. like you just couldn't even fathom anything. Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm on the other side. We're, I'm in Minnesota. I'm just getting off shift. And I uh, had to hold over. Somebody called in sick. We're watching TV. When that first plane hit, us as firemen were like, Holy shit, it's going to take them all day to hunt poles up there, get the water on it. They're going to be fighting that fire all day long. Not in my wildest dreams that I think that yep. building was going to fall. All I kept yep. thinking about was the logistics. How many people they're going to need there? Um, people that are going to be burnt up in there from the fires. Um, that's what was going through my mind. And then, then to see the buildings fall, was it was surreal. And then I worried about my mom. My mom's still out there. So I tried getting her and... Communication was crap, wasn't it? You guys, how were you guys yeah, communicating yeah. to each other? Uh, what? No, we we weren't able to. I like uh, my wife had just gotten a, a job on Long Island, and at the minute those towers came down, we, we we couldn't communicate for at least four hours. It took her four hours to go home from her school to where we lived, which was only twenty-two miles, bro. We lived twenty-two miles from where she worked. It took her four hours because the highways was shut down only to first responders going west towards Manhattan and everybody else that had to head to their homes had to take the service road. So my wife was stuck on the service road for four hours. You can listen to the radio because the radios went down. There was nothing. Once the tower fell down, all the antennas were done. So people trying to get any kind of information on the AM or FM radio, there was no kind of coverage, nothing. So yeah. Four hours around. How did how did you get in contact with your family members when you guys were down there? Were they? At, I mean, at, they must have been crazy worried about you guys. As odd as it sounds, the Nextel Direct Connect was working, and oh, I had wow. one. I had one, and yeah, my wife didn't have, yeah. And my wife had one, and that's how I kept in contact with her. Yeah. It, I couldn't make a phone call because yep. the cell towers were down. But for some odd reason, those direct connects worked. And we were able to communicate that way. Which, Man. I mean, out of everything, it was just odd. Like, I told my wife to call my partner's wife. You know, that's the only way that we could communicate. It was sporadic, mm -hmm. but the direct connect messaging worked for some strange, odd reason. The, yeah. the radios that we carried were, were done. They were down. You, there was no communication. If you mm -hmm. wanted to talk to somebody that was 
you know, you had to get in contact, you had to either go find them or try and scream as loud as you could to get contact with them. Because the portable radios weren't even working. So how'd you guys get orders? It... <laughs> You went down there, you were stuck down there until you no. found somebody that was in your command that told you to go back. Hey, they've been looking for you for two days. Get back. You're like, what? Yeah. Until yeah, you found some yeah. till you found somebody that either had one bar, two bars, yep. a star, yep. a bird. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yo, they've been looking for you, your command. Yeah, I've been here for two days. Yeah, you gotta go back. I'm like, okay. Yeah. They've been somebody, looking for you. You're like some somebody that goes, Okay, you can go home now. You can you you gotta go back. And that's that. That was basically it. I wound up. We have um, in New York. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's Hatzola. It's the Jewish ambulance service, and they have a. It's like a communication center. This thing. There's more antennas on this thing that than I think NASA has, and I wound up inside their command center, and they were just like can we help you? I'm like, listen, I'm lost from my partner. I don't know where my partner went. And a lot of the guys were like, just hang out here when you're ready, catch your breath and go look for him. And I wound up, I walked down maybe two blocks and my partner was sitting on a park bench just with a gazed look on his face that had no, he had no clue what was going on. Yeah. How far was the I mean, after the the towers came down and the dust settled, which I know took there was a there was a decent breeze that day, from what I I've heard from others. I, I could smell it from my house. I lived in Queens at the time. I got up at five o'clock in the morning. You could smell you could smell the smoke from the trade center. Really, like twenty miles away. Oh yeah. Oh I yeah. Live, I live in Staten Island, and you can smell it. As yep. a matter of fact, downtown Brooklyn wound up with leaflets like paperwork yep. from the trade yep. center it literally yep. blew across the water and into downtown brooklyn wow what about yep. the the dust the the radius of 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 dust oh I... <laughs> there was dust probably up to 34th street in manhattan i if... walked it, it was it was like you had about two or three inches worth of dust on the streets mm -hmm. so I got there around 12 o'clock the afternoon that day. I didn't get home to 2 o'clock in the morning. I remember going to my house, going down to the basement. My wife came down. She started screaming because my blue uniform was all white, was all full of dust, my shoes, my everything. And I remember her screaming, oh, my God, because take that off because you got all dead people on you. You got all dead people's ashes on you. I'm like, what are you talking about? Take the uniform off. She started wigging out, man. I took off my uniform, whatever. And she, you know, she washed it separate from everything else in the wash, like two or three cycles. And I'm like, I didn't even realize, man, it was like, I was a disaster. I was a mess. I was like full covered in this stuff. And it was everywhere. Everybody you saw around there, their shoes, their, their uniform pants, everything was soiled with all that stuff, man, everywhere. We, we all started the morning off in blue uniforms and all ended up in gray. Yep. Wow. Yep. Man. And it wasn't just you know your fire your police your ems uh military who was down there even the civilians everybody was the same color that day everybody was all gray there was yeah. no and there was no none of this none of that everybody was everybody if you looked at everyone they were all everybody looked the same 
Yeah. You had they they found they found dust on 34th Street in the West Side Highway. And, and that's Frank, your, wife, your wife was right, Frank. That wasn't just concrete dust. No, oh, yeah. She yeah. she she was right. And you know what? Until this day I have problems with my nose. I have a you know hard time breathing. You know, anybody that's been down there that 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 signed up with the World Trade Center program, which is like it's a federally uh, you know a funded program that you know, pays for first responders, you know, in case you have like debilitating diseases that your insurance wouldn't cover or like it exceeds like their maximum coverage, they will help you out with the funds. And I'll tell you, a lot of people that died from cancers and everything else, uh, two years ago, I had surgery on my nose because I wasn't able to breathe. I had all kinds of problems, you know, breathing and sleep until this day. I, I don't remember the last time I slept till like eight o'clock in the morning. I could go to sleep at two o'clock in the morning. I'm up at 6.30. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on, but you know, I I haven't I haven't been able to sleep and you know, unable to breathe. So, I mean, and I'm not complaining because I know there are a lot of people a lot worse off than I am. Trust me, they're not even they're not around anymore. That's how bad it was for them, and you know, it, it isn't right. It's uh, it just isn't right. Yeah. Well, to, yeah. Go to, ahead, Joe. Till this day, I can still smell. The World Trade Center to this oh, day. Really? And yeah, I can still smell it. And it's even, look, I, if it's a crisp, clear day out like it was that morning, there wasn't a cloud in the sky that morning. Yep. Beautiful day, man. Beautiful it was, day. It wasn't hot. It wasn't cool. It was like the perfect temperature. Not a cloud in the sky. When I walk out of my house nowadays and I see that, it, it actually, I pause for a second before I walk to my car. And I can smell the, the rubble and the concrete and just everything that went on that day. Well, one thing that I've never had a chance to ask anybody who was, you know, in that area was, you know, because us here watching, you know, on, on the TV news at the time, you know, we saw the first tower fall. And I mean, me just as a, a distant spectator, you know, a thousand miles away, I see that first tower fall and it just, I mean, it's, it's devastating. But then you think to yourself, well, the other tower's still there and it's still burning. When the first tower fell, was it pretty much a foregone conclusion that the second one was also going to come down? I, I thought so. hundred percent. I said, when as soon as I saw that first one, I said, I hope these people are running for their lives, man, because it's inevitable. Everybody thought those buildings weren't they, they weren't going to come down the way they were built. Nope. But according yeah. to what they said, whatever that, you know, that jet fuel was so high, it was so high burning that it melted the beams and it couldn't, you know, the, it couldn't withstand. So it just it just collapsed because the structure just fell, man. It was like it was like jelly after a while. It just came down. I um I worked construction prior to becoming an EMT and we did a building in Manhattan and we were putting in beams into the wall and they do what they call a fire cut. So it's on an angle before it goes into the concrete of the wall. And I always kind of figured like, why wouldn't you just put the whole beam in there? And it's actually made for it to collapse down in case of anything. 
And that's exactly what happened that day. It pancaked down. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, I, I ironic, I mean, again, I'm super far away from this, uh, geographically the morning of this was, I was still in the trades. So I was at a, I was at a, um, a job site, uh, building houses in Stillwater, Minnesota that morning. And, um, you know, just, just a couple hours into the workday, all of a sudden one of the, one of the guys pulls up in his truck and says, get down, get, cause we were up on the roof, get down, get down. And we all get down and go over to his truck and he's got, uh, the radio news on full blast. Then we're standing there listening to all this unfold. And after about, it wasn't long, five or 10 minutes, uh, the foreman said, everybody go home. Everybody go home, be with your families, go home. And, and my son was nine days old. And, you know, so, and, and I think, you know, not to, I don't say this to d diminish at all, you know, you guys and the people who lived it directly, you know, there in New York and at the Pentagon and Flight 93 and so many others. But really, so many of us around the country and around the world saw this happen. And the, the first thing we wanted to do was get home to our families, you know, yeah, and, and, you know, hug our kids, hug our wives, hug our husbands, whoever. And we, we saw this progressing and unfolding on TV and, um, you know, it seemed even, even as it was happening, you know, as an hour passes, two hours pass. And then even the next morning, we all watch it continuing to unfold on TV and, you know, wondering, it felt so surreal. Like, is this, is this fucking actually happening right now? Is and, and for you who lived it, who walked through it and smelled the smells and heard the sounds, I mean, did you, did, that second morning, did you wake up almost just for a split second and say, wait, did that? It was a nightmare. Did that really happen yesterday? Not only did it not, ha did it happen the next day, but let me tell you something. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And Joe could attest to this. After that happened, Days and weeks after that, I've never experienced such patriotism by all the people everywhere. Everybody had their flags out everywhere in the city. People were very supportive of, like, first responders and stuff like that. People were so nice to one another. Everybody was, you know, cohesive. You know, everybody, like, if they could help you, they would. It, it was like, it was. it's unfortunate that something like that had to happen for people to, like, come together like that. But... I've never experienced such like peace and love from everyone. It was like, and you know what? The streets were deserted, but you know, the people came out after a while and they, 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 they regrouped. It's, I, I it's hard to explain. It's not, it's like a rebirth. It's like a rebirth, you I've know, after that. All up. Yeah. It's yeah. like somebody hit the reset button. Yep. Everybody hit the re and everybody came back. It was it was surreal. Like, is this New York or what? Like, it wasn't like New York. Everybody was so nice. And, you know, everybody was together. Everybody was willing to help one another, which is 
very uncommon in New York. You ask anybody, get fucking shot. Somebody's late for work, they'll fucking step over you. I'm sorry, I got to be somewhere. And they'll walk away and leave you there to die. You know what I'm saying? That's how New Yorkers are, unfortunately. Yeah. That's have, that's how it is over there, you know? I have a picture in my phone. It says, I want 9-12-2001. Oh, and wow. the, f- the first line says, it's not that I want another 9-11, but I want the days after. Where yeah. no one no one cared if you were black, white, yet red, purple, blue. It didn't matter whether you were Republican, yep. Democrat. Yep. No one cared. No one cared. Yep. I've never seen so many American flags being yep. flown. And all everybody had them on their cars, on their houses. Buildings were putting them out. You couldn't eat, you, you went to a store and you couldn't even find a flag. Yep, yeah, I remember. You know, and the same thing with, you know, I went, I was working in the city and Give me high noon in the that, fr- that Friday night, I did an overnight oh, shift Friday into Saturday. In the garage. And whatever. I'm with my partner when we're at, we're in, a, we're sitting in Times Square. If you know Times Square, the red steps that are there, it's right where they dropped the ball for New Year's. And I get out of the ambulance and I'm, I lit up a cigarette. My partner's smoking a little cigar. And all you see on the street corners are police officers. And a couple of people walking around. And we're talking about Times Square. Yeah. Yep. Times Square, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It's like 3 in the morning is the same thing. <laughs> and yep. I just stopped and I looked around. And there was a few police officers that I knew from the Midtown North Precinct and we're hanging out and all four of them, including my partner, looked at me and go, Joe, what's the matter? And I looked and I went, do you realize there's only about 12 of us in Times Square right now that you can hear a pin drop? There was no one, no one to be found anywhere. Everyone was either, you know, home or they were down, like we say, on the pile. But it was just amazing that Times Square was that empty when months before you had New Year's Eve, we had over two million people standing in the middle of Times Square, yeah, watch, watching yeah. a ball drop. Now, Joe, do you was that sort of an enforced thing by law enforcement, or was that more just out of respect? I think it it wasn't enforced. Well, Frank could probably answer that question for, on the law enforcement side. I didn't hear any. I'm sorry. I didn't didn't hear the question. What was the question? I'm sorry. Well, Joe was talking about the fact that Times Square was basically empty. um, And I was wondering if there if there was any like were there enforced uh, people. No, there was no, there was strictly voluntary people that people don't know didn't want to be out there. It it wasn't it wasn't no from what I from what I know, as far as I know, no orders were put out to like you know like hinder people from being in Times Square. No, people just took it upon themselves not to be there because I think people weren't in the mood to be in Times Square at the time, especially after you know, all that stuff that happened. So yeah, people were just in a somber mood. They wanted to grieve or they wanted to be with their families. They wanted to be thankful to be alive and all that other stuff. And I guess you know they could hang out in Times Square anytime they want besides that night. You know if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. I you know we work. EMS works hand in hand with the police department and with the fire department and we always communicate with each other and if 
if any of the officers would have told us that, you know, there's a curfew or they're enforcing it, they would have let us know. But nobody said that there was any kind nope. of curfew or or enforcement of, you know, not being on the street. I think people just decided, you know what, I'm going to spend time with my family and stay home. Frank, I got a question for you. You yep. mean, how was Rackers Island? How did them, the people in incarceration, how did they respond to it? I don't know how they responded to it because at the time I wasn't working in the jail anymore. I was, I was assigned to the transportation division. Okay. But, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you, you know. I, I don't know. Honestly, I wouldn't, I'm not going to give you like a wrong uh, wrong answer. No. Like I said, I was out of the jail. I was, was, what, 2001? I was transferred to the transportation division in 98, so I already had been there for three years. So I was out of the, of the jail in, uh, three years already. But, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, Joe, from a from a medical response and hospital standpoint, what was the, I mean, the the day of and the day after, and you know the 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 early, you know, first thirty six hours, what was the triage process like? I mean, besides a shit a shit storm. If you could walk and talk, the hospital's that way. Okay. If you needed to be transported, we put you in the ambulance. But if you could walk and talk, if you had a minor injury, walk that way. Yeah. Did logistically, what else did you have? Did you change your the way your ambulance was set up at all? Now, um, the only thing we did set up on I work on a basic life support bus, so we don't really carry um, IV bags. But what I did was I actually put up IV bags on the bar inside the ambulance and put a system in there so I could flush people's faces out using a uh, using the bag instead of using the little water bottles that they had. That was basically it. Otherwise, there was the amount of people that, that they actually thought the hospitals and EMS was going to see, see that day was not even close to what they saw. Yep. St. Vincent's Hospital in Lower Manhattan. You, you're a you, you're familiar with it from growing up on the Lower East Side. Mm -hmm. um, literally had hospital beds lining up on Seventh Avenue with doctors yep. and nurses, almost like a mesh unit mm. outside. And nobody showed up. We pulled up. We we had two firefighters that we took. We dropped them off. They went right in. And the nurses and the doctors were literally sitting on the beds in the middle of 7th Avenue waiting for patients that never showed up. Hmm. Man. Um, so <clears throat> going kind of, you know, because it's it's like I know it's, it was a slow process, you know, with, from the injured to the, you know, getting the search teams through the rubble and the bucket brigades and, and all that. Um, and then, you know, as, as the days and then days turned into weeks and weeks turned into months, how soon did it take for you to kind of return to what felt like a, and I'm sorry to use this word, but what felt like a normal day, like standard duty? again how long did that take 
before everything back to normal. Uh, my perspective, I'm going to my perspective. I'm, I'll say probably a good two years, man. A good wow. two years. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, two years because, yeah, it took about two years for everything to go back to normal. And was that was that sort of because everybody was on high alert, or was it because of um, just kind of working your way through the 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 mental trauma of it, or or it, just it takes time? Yeah, it takes time for you to heal, man. You know, you keep thinking about it every day and stuff like that. Especially like a couple of months later, they had that mishap with that American Airlines flight that flew over Rockaway Beach and. Yeah, and, and and went up in flames. So like you're thinking right away, something else happened that was terrorist related. So here we go again. You know, a couple of months later, this was September. I think that happened in either November or December. Was a flight was an American Airlines flight going to the Dominican Republic that was flying over like Bell Harbor, which is like in Far Rockaway, and that thing went up in flames, killing the whole, killing everybody on the flight. And you know, I think people that were living in the houses below. So I was like, what are you supposed to think? Like you're always like on like high alert. I mean, listen, that that day changed everything in history, man. Like, that's why you go through that bullshit every time you travel now. You got to wait in line for freaking two hours. They search everything, man. It was never like that. You could walk back in the day. You could walk right into the airport. If your loved one was traveling abroad, you could walk with them right up to the gate, man. You put them on a the plane, you say goodbye, and they took off. Now, you, can, you can't do that anymore. Those days are long gone, man. Those days are gone. That day changed everything. That day change our lives forever man people don't realize that but that that day it uh is a day in history that everything changed security wise traveling wise you know never i would who would have thought something like that could ever happen that anywhere you go now you can even bring like a bottle of shampoo on a flight because everybody's paranoid you're going to blow up a plane or anything like that yeah. never in a million years you know frank i got a question for you so after 9-11, I went home and visited mom. Um, was PD still doing that from uptown all the way downtown where they closed roads down? So they, they were practicing. God forbid it happened again. Were you part of that? No, I wouldn't know about that because I, I worked in Queens. So at sure. that time, uh, I was I was sent to the 115 precinct in Jackson Heights. I'm not aware of that. But I know they got specialty units always on standby. They had the ESU. They got K-9 and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you know, I don't know. They they could have done stuff like that. Not I'm not I'm not aware of that. But I know that the NYPD is always trained, always ready to go, man. They they always, you know, they always go through the, the the best training in the world. So they're always ready to go just in case anything happens. They're, you know, they're ready. Yeah, Joe. What was um, kind of the the question about when did things feel kind of normal again? What what was it for you? nothing actually feels normal to me oh yeah i just it's um because right after that occurred and everything that was going on we went right in if you remember the anthrax scares yeah and then not only that it was the everybody was calling in a suspicious package if somebody saw a teddy bear on the street a kid might have dropped it innocently but people would call it in and we'd do a standby and they'd send out the bomb squad and fire department and it just it just kept going on and on. You got a sense, I guess, a sense of normality, I guess, maybe 
Frank's probably right, maybe about two years, two and a half years, but still to this day, um, my wife thinks like I'm nuts, but when we go out to eat, I don't, I don't sit with my back to the door. I sit near an exit. Um, I'm constantly, my head is constantly on a swivel. If, if I'm working and, you know, I live in Staten Island. I work in Staten Island now. And sometimes the, the personal planes will fly over. And if they fly too low, I freak out. I turn up, I, you know, I turn my head to see what's going on. It's, you know, it's, it, it, you, you still have that sense of like, okay, when is the, when is the next shoe going to drop? Mm. Joe, how's that changed the ambulance service for you too? Um, any other precautions you've been taking? Any other equipment that you put on your ambulances now? Well, we have, now we have gas masks on the ambulances. We have um, atropine and 2PAM for any kind of chemical attack. Uh, basically, it's, it's, we do a lot of training when it comes to that. A lot of online training, some in-person training. For us in particular, it's basically keeping your head on a swivel. And now it's, they don't allow you what they're starting to call it freelancing, where if you heard, you know, we call it a hot job, um, unless you're assigned to it, they don't want you running to it. Where on that day, everybody just responded. But you also had an FDMY chief come over the air and legitimately say, send me everybody, including the army and the world. Yeah. On September 11th. That was his radio transmission. Now, until one or two units show up on scene and actually see what they have, then they'll start dispatching more and more units to the location. They just don't want everybody rushing in. Because what happens is everybody goes over the radio and uses whatever ambulance they're in and says, okay, show me, show me responding. Show me responding. And... and the dispatcher's there, and the dispatcher has to type in every unit that's going. If she misses a unit and that unit gets hurt, no one's going to know where that unit is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it became a safety precautions, which I agree with because of being there that day. A lot of the young kids that work nowadays, they hear, you know, the hot job come over and they're ready to run to it. And I look at them and I go, how about we take a second, take a deep breath, and let's wait until the first unit arrives and find out what we have going on. Yeah. What was the um, what was the first thing that happened that was sort of a glimmer of hope for you, uh, Joe? I'm going to start with you. And and you know, again, us being far away from it, you know, we see everything on TV. You know, there was, you know. President Bush throwing out the first pitch, you know, which was, you know, a big moment. What was for you, for you, Joe, and I'm going to ask you this too, Frank, but Joe, what was that first thing within the first, again, day, week, month that gave you a glimmer of hope? I would have to say when I started to see the pile start to go down and more or less the West Side Highway become a little bit more normalized um when they pulled that pile up one of the things and the 
I-beams were in the shape of a cross. Yeah. And at the same time, it just happened to be that the sun was shining right behind it. And everybody stopped and looked and saw like a cross. And it had a piece of sheet metal draped over it that actually looked like Jesus' shroud on top of this cross. And I think at that point, that's when everybody kind of said, all right, maybe we're going to get through this. Yeah. And Frank, it, to, to me, when I saw that, too, I was like, all right, you know what? We're going to get through this. It's going to be hard, but we'll get there. Yeah. Frank, what about you? What was that first first moment for you? Well, the first moment, I was hoping that they would save more people out of the pile which did happen. There was a couple of few miracles that happened. Yet the two Port Authority officers that, that were taken out of the rubble. Then you had a whole team of firefighters with the uh, with a lady that, that were going down a staircase. And when the whole building came down, for some miracle, they were, they were not touched. And, you know, they came out alive. Then there was this other gentleman that rolled down the whole building as it was coming down and landed on the pile without being touched. So I'm saying, you know, if these people made it, I'm hoping... Other people get found and get home to their families. You know, that didn't happen. So, I mean, that gave me some kind of hope. And then, like Joe said, when they got working and, you know, they concluded that there was no one else to be found or recovered, they, they got the, you know, they got the uh, recovery uh, going and, you know, they cleaned everything up. And once they started building, you know, the other tower, that's when I got a little piece of, you know, in my heart that, you know, we were going to make this out of it. You know, we were going to come out of this and, and look at what they mean now. They mean like the Freedom Tower. I mean, it's never going to compensate for what we had before, but, you know, that gives you like a glimmer of hope that we are back on top where we should be. Yeah. So, after that, I know a lot of us suffer from PTSD. If you're in the jobs, if, you want, if we're a responder, it comes no matter how many years you have on it, it usually comes. Are you guys still going through some PTSD from that, from 9-11 and just from the jobs? And how do you deal with it? Uh, cop, you know, cops go out to bars, they have drinks, and they talk. We are our, we are our own therapists. We are our own uh, psychiatrists and psychologists. And that's how it's been. For years, man, you know, that's what they say. Oh, you guys, you know, the cop culture, you guys always drinking. Yeah, we always drinking because you don't know what's behind the drinking. So after a hard day's work, we all get together and we all vent to one another by having a drink. And that's how we get through it. You know what? Some people are stronger mentally than others and they get through it, you know, and some people aren't. You think they are, but they aren't. But, you know. But, you know, we try to help each other out. Like I said from the beginning, we are brotherhood. We are here for one another. We, we were brothers and sisters. So if you need my help, I will help you. And, you know, that's, that's all we can do. You know, we're here for one another. What Joe? about you, Joe? Uh, it's kind of along the same lines as Frank. I mean, on an EMS side, it's a little bit uh, different. Usually if somebody's calling for an ambulance, I'm not going to say it's 100% of the time that they're, you know, in bad shape because you still get your crazy calls. But uh, when we're in a group together, we have, they say we all have a dark sense of humor. Yes, we do. <laughs> so yep. 
when we're when we're sitting there and we're joking around, if you have a civilian that's standing next to you, they can relate. They'll no, look they at you not. like there's something wrong. Like I could yeah. be in a group with maybe yeah. five or five or six other EMTs and paramedics. And we could turn around and go, hey, listen, I had this hot job the other day. It was a great job. Oh, yeah, what'd you have? I had four people shot. If a civilian hears that, they're going to be like, how is that a great job? But in our sick, twisted minds, that's how we consider a call. Yeah. And we deal with each other. If someone has a problem, yeah. we'll talk it out. You want to you want to call me up? I and I tell this even to the new kids when they get on. My phone is on twenty four seven. Okay, you want to talk about something? Call me. I'll pick up the phone. You want to sit there and curse at me and vent? No problem. I'll help you get through it. Don't keep it bottled up. Yeah. If you keep it bottled up, that's when you run into problems. So you want to call me up and curse at me and scream at me and yell at me? Eh, whatever. Okay, my phone's on. I'm not going to take it personally because I know you're not aiming it towards me. I know you're just doing it to vent, and I'm fine with it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 22 years later, what is what is the thing that is – Aside from what we were just talking about, which is mental and emotional support for those that need it, what is the what is the most needed thing for survivors, whether they're service providers like, you know, fire, police and EMS or civilian survivors? What is the most needed thing aside from like we already talked about the emotional and mental support? I mean, most needed thing. Listen, a lot of people are hurting, man. A lot of people have come up done with cancer. They have all kinds of debilitating diseases. You know, I, I have psoriatic arthritis. My, my, my freaking joints are swelling up. I have all kinds of problems with me, you know. And like I said, listen, I'm thankful. I'm still alive. Thank God for that. But like I said, a lot of other people that came down with all kinds of debilitating diseases wound up dying. But, yeah, what you need is you need good medical coverage. You need good support. You need good mental support, you, your friends, because... I don't know what, you know, what kind of chemicals, what kind of stuff was on in, in that pile, what kind of stuff. But I know till this day, people are still suffering and people need help. People need medical help. And, uh, you know, a lot of times they do get it. And even if they do get it, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. But at least like you have some kind of hope and you have somebody that, you know, wants to help you, you know, or, or you can get somebody to help you to, to get better. I, I think the biggest thing is mental health. Okay. People, pe people that are struggling. Um, we 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 have a society that if you show any kind of mental weakness, you're put down. You're like outed, and people tend to not want to say. I don't know. I can't speak for the police department. I can speak on the EMS side. I can't speak for the fire department. We have a lot of mental health issues we deal with a lot of stuff that in all honesty i don't think the human eye should have to see amen to that bro yeah okay and a lot of a lot of us keep it bottled up and we'll turn to the bottle and we think okay 
great. I can get drunk tonight and everything will go away. But guess what? That thing's still there in the morning. Yeah. That pain is still there. And if you speak, if you speak out that you need help, um, a lot of the times amongst your peers, you get looked down. You, you get looked down upon. And that's the, that's the saddest part. Well, and especially, um, and I don't say this disparagingly, but especially men and, and not that women who were in this particular, you know, September 11th, 2001 situation or other tough times they go through, but there is a societal expectation that men are supposed to always be strong and never have any problems and never crumble under pressure. And that's just not the case, especially when they go through something as, as like you said, Frank, as world changing as September 11, 2001. No, that definitely changed. It, it changed everything, man. It, it, it changed everything. The way we look at each other, the way like you profile someone, you, you know, it's like everybody's, you're paranoid, man. Everybody's paranoid. It's like it'll never revert back to what it was. It's never going to go back. It can't. It's just like how it is. It's, it's crazy, you know? Like, you know, who would ever thought, like, if you want to travel domestically, you got to go there three hours before just to get on a flight to get searched. I mean, that never happened before. But unfortunately, yeah. because of this, 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 this cowardly act now, you know, everybody's got to go through that. It's like... What world are we living in? This is like the freaking, it's like the twilight zone, man. It's like, come on. Oh, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I agree with Frank. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was driving through the Lincoln Tunnel. And I got stopped at the Lincoln Tunnel because they wanted to take a look in the back of my pickup truck. Is that, still, is that still going on even today? They, they do random searches periodically of all the trucks crossing the bridges and tunnels. Which, okay. I, you know what? I have no problem with it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, safety is safety. What, what, what was scary was when I, you know, weeks and months after, we would uh, go to Penn Station, and you would see the National Guard down there fully geared up with long guns. Wow. And you're walking through, you know, you're walking through to get a patient, and every, every 5, 10 feet, there's a National Guardsman there. And you're like, am I in New York? Where am I? What, yeah. what What's going on here? Like, and I mean, don't get me wrong. The more safe, the you know, the the safety, the the safer we are, the better. Yeah. But it's just a, you know, I grew up in New York my whole life. The only time I ever saw any kind of military was if I went over to Fort Hamilton, at the at the base. Yeah. But to see them in a train station is pretty scary. Unfortunately, this is the world we live in now, and it's going to be like that forever, no matter what. You go down to Grand Central Station, you got the New York State Troopers, you got the NYPD, you got the MTA police. It's like, come on. It's like, it's, it's so much. Listen, it's good for the public. I get it. But, you know, it's, yeah. it was never like that. It's just... It, I'm not saying it's over, because I understand that we need it, but it's never, it was never like that. And unfortunately, because of what happened, this is what, uh, you know, that's what you get now. Yeah. Well, now, 22 years later, <clears throat> I mean, obviously, there's, there's a lot of young people that don't uh, have 
the perspective of somebody who was, you know, around when this happened. Um, or, you know, were they were they were just a kid, two, three years old when it happened. Um, and I'm sure you guys have people like that in your families um, or, you know, kids of friends of yours, whatever it may be. How do you, as somebody who not only was alive when it happened, but you experienced it firsthand uh, from a support perspective, how do you how do you address the younger generation about the events of September 11th, 2001? And, and how do you, how do you try to convey to them what, what is important about it and, and why it's important to, uh, to know about it and remember it? Well, I would hope that they would teach it in school. There'd be some kind of curriculum to teach these kids in school. You know, this should be part of history. It is history after all. So, I mean, I wouldn't have to be the one to explain it to my kids. I mean, at some point, I probably would have to, but I would think that they would be educated in school about it, that just like they're being taught about the, you know, the Declaration of Independence and George Washington and all that other stuff, you know, part of history. You know, the teacher should be teaching it in the classroom as part of, you know, as part of history and, uh, you know, bring them to light of what, what happened. You know, this is a historical, you know, event that happened and, you know, the kids should be aware of it. But like I said, if you if you didn't experience it, you're not gonna have the perspective of someone that has been there. You know, like everything else in life. Yeah. You know what I mean? You could have the old timers tell you, "Oh, remember this neighborhood used to be all Italians when I grew up here in the '50s," but you never lived there, so you can't really think of it. Now you're driving through it; it's all gentrified and everything else. So you never lived through it, so you can't. You don't have that perspective on how it really was. So same thing with this. I could tell my kids a million times over, but. Right. You know, if they didn't live it, they could watch all the documentaries and all that stuff. And, you know, it's not like when you've been there physically and mentally and you've seen everything that happened. Right. You know, I wish I wasn't there to have seen it. But, you know, as fate has habit, it is what it is, man. Yeah. My, my, son, my son was born on June 24th of 2001. Wow. So. Yeah. Technically, he grew up with it. Um, he has asked me. I have told him about it. I have spoke about it. He knows it's a touchy subject. So he kind of, I don't want to, he kind of chooses his words because he doesn't know if it's, you know, if it's going to bring back memories or anything like that. But he has watched the documentaries and I've sat with him and watched them. He's watched them on his own, and he's asked me what it was like that day, and basically my response to him was, hell, hell. Yeah. Uh, we walked through hell. And the yeah. young the young kids, I, I mean, I worked with a kid who was 21 years old recently, and he asked me, he goes, I, you know, I don't want to get personal, I said, whatever, it, you know, the front of the ambulance is like a therapy session. <laughs> you want to ask me a question, ask me a question. <laughs> if I if I choose to give you the answer, it's one thing. If I choose not to, it's another. But they've asked me, you know, what it was like that day. And basically the same thing. It was like walking through hell yeah. and hoping and hoping and praying that you got home to your loved ones. Yeah. Well, and. Um, you know, I'll say we have, we have some more stuff to cover, but I'll say 
to both of you, and this this could come in from all of us, you know, Justin and Raul and myself, and all our viewers, that we are grateful to you guys and all the other people who, uh, some of whom, a, a lot of whom didn't make it home, um, that, and and to say to you guys, the people who did make it home, you guys included, that there's at least one person out there, if not more, who is either healthier or alive period because of you guys and we are grateful to you for that thank you thank you one of our viewers asked a question um after 9-11 we talked about how the country was galvanized we all came together um did you see a big uptake in people wanting to become policemen i'm student police officers ems fire in new york yeah 100 percent 100 percent Still till this day, the kids that are turning of age now, they become a fireman and cops because of their dads, uncles, or granddads, whatever the case may be, they become cops, firemen, EMTs because of their legacy. Yes, 100%. Yeah, they, they, they're trying to follow in, in a family member's footstep. Yep. Whether, yep. It was, whether it was their father, their, it could have been their mother yep. also. Yep. They, yep. They, want, they want to go that route. Um, what I did see an increase of was... The recruitment center for the armed forces in the middle of yes, Times Square, hundred percent. Yep, 100%, yep. Ha had a had a line of men and women about two and a half, three blocks long, waiting to go in and sign papers to to become uh, military. I, I think that was all over the country. Yeah, I I yep. saw I saw a firefighter on one of the documentaries years ago about the September 11th attacks uh, talking about this very thing. And he equated it to um, the, uh, the guys lining up to sign up to BGIs after the attack on Pearl Harbor, that there were uh, all the recruitment centers, just about all the recruitment centers across the country had lines at the doors uh, after the Pearl Harbor attack uh, in, in 1941. And, um, and I know, yeah, that's a great question from our viewer, um, Dax, who we'll talk about cigars and baseball in a minute. But, um, yeah, that and and the good thing is that I, I feel like that's another aspect of the sort of coming together, you know, the unity thing that that, again, you you never want you you never want a tragedy to happen, but. You, you have to look for, after the tragedy happens, you have to look for the silver linings and the, the good things that come out right. of it and, and the unity that came from it and the people who stepped up and said, what can I do to help? You know, and yeah. if that's somebody saying, I want to I wanna be a firefighter, I want to be a paramedic, I want to be a police officer, I want to be a soldier in the Army or the Marine Corps, you know, um, I, I think we have to look for those those silver linings that come out of it uh, because otherwise we'll just fucking go crazy, you know, yep. and, and yeah. focus on that. I, I would, have I, you know, I wasn't born in 1941 when Pearl Harbor happened. So I don't know too much about that. about people lining up, right. but um, definitely after, after nine 11, people were lining up to join the military. They Frank's wanted, uh, as, Frank's as, not that old. 
<laughs> as someone as someone said to one of our units on uh, that was online, it was one of the guys asked them. They're like, you know, why why are you standing on the line for? And he turned around and he goes, I want payback. Uh. So I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's I'm, it's tough because you, that is always going to happen too. That's everybody's sentiment at that time. Everybody's angry and everybody's upset that our country was attacked. And that's you know, yeah, that would be a normal that would be a normal response. You know, people are angry. They want to they want to get back at the enemy to you know to even the score. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Most people, when they get an opportunity to take a breath and calm down, you know, they realize, yeah. look, you know, I'm going to do what I can do in my own. In my own life, in my own family, in my own circle of friends, and let God take care of the rest, kind of thing, you know. It, it, um, I'm sure most of those people that were on that line, by the time they did get up to the front door of that office, had second thoughts. I'm not uh, saying everybody on that line yeah. signed up. Uh, I would say a good majority did, but. I think once, like like I said, it you know, your emotions are taken over, and I think when you actually sit back and think about it, as you're on that line, you're gonna take off. You're gonna leave that line and be like, you know what, I'm not ready for this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not here for the right reasons. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, all right. So, guys, normally at this time in the show, uh, we do a segment called Numero de los Muertos. And okay. typically it's a funny kind of, you know, we, we talk about odd and weird and quirky statistics about weird ways that, you know, people end up dead. But this show is different. You know, this show is, is you know, this is the tribute show for, for everybody that lost their lives and everybody that served on, on September 11, 2001. And, and the aftermath, of course. Um, so the number this week, I'm going to have Raul read them off and, and talk a little bit about it. So we have eight EMT paramedics, 60 police officers, 340 <coughs> firefighters, 297 civilians, and countless others that passed away afterwards from the dust and, and the aftermath of, of the towers falling. Yeah, and and that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was just New York City. That didn't count. Yeah, the, just the Pentagon and Flight 93 and and others. Yeah, so um, I would like to, uh, if we could, just uh, just briefly, we're going to take a moment of silence. So everybody, just sit tight for just a moment, please.
All right. Thank you, everybody, for taking just a moment with us to uh, to reflect a little bit. Um, this is, you know, again, I say it a lot, but this is a, this is a different kind of show than we normally do. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's meaningful. I hope I think it's important. Um, so the the next thing that I want to jump into, normally we, we do kind of a lightning round of non cigar related questions um, on here. But um, Raul's got kind of a special uh, lightning round question for you guys. But uh, we have to definitely thank our sponsor. Uh, JC Newman always sponsors the lightning round and they are America's oldest family owned premium cigar maker, creators of the popular brick house, Perla Del Mar, Diamond Crown and the American. J.C. Newman Cigar Company operates out of their 112-year-old El Relo Cigar Factory in historic Cigar City, Tampa, Florida. For more information on their cigars or visitor experience, please visit jcnewman.com. Um, and Raul, but sorry, before you go into that, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't go back and thank our sponsors, Smoke In, because they all always sponsor um, Numero, de los Numero de los Muertos. Uh, so Smoke In... Thank you very much for sponsoring, uh, being one of our sponsors. Uh, Raul, what's this? Uh... So, for both of you guys, I know you drive around with a toolbox. The ambulance is a toolbox. The squad car is a toolbox. We got our fire trucks. It's a big toolbox. Joe, if there was a zombie apocalypse, <laughs> what are you taking out of your toolbox? What am I taking out of my toolbox? Probably an oxygen tank. It really hurts when it drop when you drop it on your foot. So, yeah, I think I think the uh, the oxygen tank is probably the heaviest thing. I'm not picking up a stretcher and throwing it at them. I'm, I'm definitely I'm definitely using an oxygen tank. And what would you rather have, police or fire, with you? Oh, uh, I can't go that route. See, that's dangerous. <laughs> you, they're well, setting you up, Joe. You're getting yeah, set up. Yeah, I know. That was such a setup question. <laughs> that's a setup, bro. <laughs> um, You're getting set up. You don't even know it. Well, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll be politically correct. I'll have PD shoot him, and then fire can hose down the street. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got a nice, clean job that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Frank, now, the same question for you. Zombie apocalypse, what are you taking out of your squad car? Dude, we don't really have, you know, I don't know. You guys have been watching too many movies. You know what we got in a squad car? Got a freaking stupid computer, and that's about it. You know, we don't have, we don't have a shotgun. We don't have a shotgun rack. So, I don't know. I, I, I would take myself out of this freaking squad car and, I guess, run and defend myself, man. Start shooting them because, really, we got flares, maybe some flares. I got flares in the trunk of the car. There we got go. traffic flares, believe it or not. Yeah, and a spare tire in the trunk. That's it. I'm well, not even got, kidding. That's all we got. Yeah, we have we we have flares in the ambulance too. So maybe yeah. the oxygen tank in the flare. <laughs> yeah, so, nothing really like to brag about. It's it's you know this is New York City, bro. They don't really give you anything like you know. So if you guys are smart, you find the first fire truck and grab yourself a Halligan. Perfect tool for a zombie apocalypse. Halligan or an axe? I would yeah. agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. Sure. Crack some noggins, man. <laughs> Just don't get it stuck in there. You know, you got to be. Yeah, able... yeah. Well, you know, you could always manage to, like, you know, get pry it out of there, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Frank Frank would notice the old mahogany nightsticks were, were pretty good, too. Oof. Oh, <laughs> yes, sir. 
the the old wooden shampoos, my friend. Yes, yes, <laughs> they were very they were very effective. Yes, but that's you know that's back back in the day. You know that that wouldn't fly anymore these days. Well, you, know? you can't even yeah. say hello. You can't even say hello to somebody. You get yeah, in trouble yeah. for it. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Back then, back then, you know, law enforcement was respected. You know, you know, if you saw a bunch of kids hanging out in the corner, you walk by them and say, "Dude, what are you guys? You know, guys, what are you doing here?" Blah blah blah. Listen, I'm gonna go around the block. If I come back around the corner, you guys are here. It's gonna be hell to pay. And you know, they're no better. You know, if you came back around the block, you were there. You know, you got you have to take it like a man, man. But you know. Yeah. Here's a good question from Dax. If you guys want to get oh, yeah. lightning round. Um. Well, that's a great. Uh, I'm going to do the second half of Dax's question, and I'm going to. Well, yeah, let's let's go with uh, let's go with all of it. So, um, start with Frank. What's your what's your favorite like the cigar you reach for the most often? Cigar that I reach most often. Well, you know, I like my protocols. I like my Drew Estates. Uh, you know, but most often I like a nice Davidoff. Uh, you know. Uh, Davidoff, uh, uh, late hour Churchill. I like that. And, and for my breakfast cigar, I would definitely go for my, uh, my breakfast cigar is the uh, protocol themis with a nice cup of coffee early in the morning. Nice. And, and what shop do you usually shop at out there? Brent? Well, I tell you the truth. I do not shop in New York because I, as you guys, I don't know if you guys are aware that New York sure. charges a 96% cigar tax. So, Every opportunity that I have, I go to my, my brother has a house in Reading. So when I visit my brother in Reading, we usually take a ride to Cigars International in Hamburg and I do my shopping over there. 96%. You know? Wow. Damn. Yeah. New York State has a, like, let's say like a little Padron, like a $13 Padron in uh, Pennsylvania would cost me 30 bucks in New York. That's crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. Yep. Same question for you, Joe. What's your everyday smoke? Well, like Frank said, the protocol themis in the morning with my cup of coffee. Can't beat it. And nice. uh, probably anything along the lines of protocol or Espinosa cigars. Yeah. And where do you get your sticks from? Oh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I if now don't get me wrong, if I go to a brick and mortar in New York, I will buy cigars there to support the brick and mortar. Yeah. But if I need a re-up, I am not buying in New York because a hundred dollar box of cigars in Pennsylvania is probably about $200 in New York. Oh yeah. So I'm not, I'm not, I, first of all, I'm not as rich as Frank, so I can't <laughs> afford it. <laughs> yeah, I wish bro. I wish. <laughs> but uh, it's it just the tax in New York is ridiculous. Uh, yeah, it is. A ten dollar stick is anywhere eighteen, nineteen dollars. Mm, unreal. Which is um, just uh, absurd. It is. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's jump kind of on this. We'll stay on this same line with our our notable smokable segment, uh, and that's brought to us by our friends at Luciano Cigars. Notable cigars, notable passion, notable purpose. Uh, so, guys. Each week, we name a cigar on the show that we smoked recently that stood out to us. Now, this could be a cigar that's been on the market for decades that we just smoked for the first time in a long time. Or this could be a cigar that we smoked recently for the first time ever that just came out on the market. Um, and, you know, we heard from you guys that you like, you know, Protocol, Espinosa, Davidoff. We heard some great brands in there. 
but um, Joe, starting with you, is there something you smoked recently in the last, you know, couple of weeks or month or so that just really blew your socks blew off. your socks off? I had a Padron 50th anniversary someone gave me. Oh, oh and my goodness! When I tell you from start to finish, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. So that one stood out the most. Very nice. What about you, Frank? Where can I start? I mean, I like a nice, you know, uh, Drew Estate, a nice Frio Flying Pig. I like that. That's a nice stick. Or a nice, you know, you can go wrong with a Liga number nine. I love the Liga's number nines. They're very yeah. nice cigars. Yeah. can never go wrong with that. Very nice. Uh, Justin, did you have a notable this week? Um, yeah. Let me, uh, let me see what I... Got to go through. I, I'm going for <laughs> go through the uh, camera roll on your phone. That's what I do too. I know. Yeah. I'm gonna have to go with uh, the Christoph. Uh, what was this? The Christoph Habano. I think I had. Oh, nice. To go first time. That was pretty good. Nice, Raul. What about you? I had a Argos. Argos. Yes. From uh, they were just here. Stolen Throne. Stolen Thrones. Yeah, Lee Marsh. Stolen Throne cigars. Very nice. Very good cigar. Um, when we were at Perfect Ash last week yep. i got the the 2023 crown heads las calaveras oh yes i Very like the nice. 2000 was the 2004 <gasps> you have the 2014 calaveras oh yeah first one yeah, yeah. Yes. Right, that, that was the one with the green label no the white label oh, the white label. with the white label the green I had the 18 i had the 18s with the red label that were yeah. awesome but the 14s were phenomenal man yeah yes. the green the green label one was really good too yeah I forgot, yeah, I, which it, year, I forgot which year that was. If you haven't tried this year's, it's got, is it yellow? Yep. Yeah, yellow, bright yellow band on this year's. Um, okay. I, I would put it in the top five of, oh, of yeah? all, all the different years of Las Calaveras. I really enjoyed that cigar a lot. I really like it. Have you guys tried uh, uh, Guy Fieri's cigar yet by uh, Eric Espinosa? Oh. Did you guys try the knuckle sandwich yet? Oh, yeah. Right. What do you think? You, I, you, I really you, liked it. It was good. You just I took like the this. word. You took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah, actually, <laughs> I tried both. I tried the Maduro. They're very, very good stuff, man. Actually, yeah. I smoked. I'm not a big Connecticut fan, but I smoked their Connecticut. It was pretty good. Yeah. It was good. Yeah, it was very good yeah. stick, man. Yeah, yeah. I I equivocally uh, compare the the Connecticut to like a Connecticut and a Habano Rosado had a baby, and yeah. that was born. Yeah. Yeah, that's I, good stuff. Yeah, that that whole line is 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 really good. I have Protocol's line is good too. I, yep. I I love their cigars. As you can see, I'm smoking a Cybercrimes, which oh, is very good. nice. Hey Wong, how you doing today? Hey Wong, hey, there's one. There's Thanks. one in the house. Listen, like I said, the probable cause, my all-time favorite, and besides that is the original Protocol from 2015. As oh, a matter yeah. of fact. I smoked the last one maybe a couple of months ago. I took it out of my humidor. When I took out the wrapper, the wrapper was brown, bro. That shit's been there marinating for fucking God knows how many years. I didn't even know I had it. Frank, I took just, it out of it. Frank, just to let you know, next time we meet up, I got a blue Lancero from the original bundles. Oh, you oh, do? Which, nice. which, which I have for you. I'll make yeah. sure I put oh. it in my humidor. Yes. Don't forget, bro. No, I'm going to hold won't. you to it. I yeah, will. Right. And it's the original. It's the white band. Not the nice. sil not the silver band that they so it's it's still I have uh I think I might have about five or six of them left. So I have one with yeah. your name on it, Frank. I oh, appreciate it, brother. That's awesome. 
Uh, so that was this week's Notable Smokables brought to you by Luciano Cigars. Improving lives through fine cigars. Please visit LucianoCigars.com to learn more. Uh, now, we're going to let you guys know about some coming attractions we have. Uh, and those are brought to us by our friends at A.J. Fernandez. A.J. Fernandez now produces unparalleled premium cigars in Esteli, Nicaragua. The A.J. Fernandez portfolio of cigars provides blend strength and flavor profiles to match the preferences of any premium cigar consumer, whether it's New World, Dios de Gloria, San Latano, Enclave, or Bayas Artes, you are sure to be satisfied with a premium cigar from A.J. Fernandez. All right. Coming up in oh, just yeah. a couple of days on September 14th, Thursday, September 14th, we are going to be at Cigars and Baseball. Where? Cigars and Baseball. Oh. One of the best cigar events you will ever be around. Not only do we have cigars, we have baseball. Fan- we have baseball. There will be baseball being played on the field at CHS Field in St. Paul. Uh, nice. We have vendors from uh, local restaurants, uh, catering places, distilleries, distilleries, breweries, breweries. Um, got new cigars that are added this year that weren't there last. Yeah, year. there's new cigars. There's de- there's definitely new cigar companies this year. The um, there's a silent auction. Um, I, I uh, live music. Thank you, Dax. I believe that you can still get in on this. So if you do not yet have a ticket to Cigars and Baseball, please go to cigarsbaseball.com. And remember, everything from Cigars and Baseball goes to support the Miracle League, which puts together baseball facilities for kids with disabilities so that they can still participate in the great game of baseball. So check it out. We will be there. Uh, We're not going – we'll go live a couple times, uh, but most of our interviews this year we're going to pre-record and post on our YouTube channel after the fact because we get really good quality video from that. So Frank See, now, and Joel, you guys I wish, are, I wish I lived closer. I would love to go to that. That would oh, be it's awesome. A, it's a great experience smoking a cigar, watching baseball. I mean, we yeah. can't do it anymore. No. <laughs> fresh air. Yeah, and blah, all the blah. All the proceeds go to the kids in Miracle League to support them and, and build baseball fields for, you know, the kids that have a handicap and whatnot. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, that's awesome. It's a great event. That's awesome. Yeah, it's uh this will be our third year at Cigars and Baseball and uh we absolutely love it. It's, it's you know, it's, I haven't been to every cigar event in the country, but I've been to quite a few and as far as I'm concerned Cigars and Baseball is one of the best. Top notch. All right, so so uh-huh. next year you guys have to come to the protocol pool party. Yes, oh yeah, definitely. Yes, we don't know the day out. yet, but dude, yes, that's the yes. party of the year, man. You definitely have to be there. We have heard I, I, we have heard the stories and seen yes. the pictures and from cigar or from uh, the pro. I definitely, party. I definitely recommend it, man. Definitely recommend it. Can take it. I'm sorry, your liver. Yeah, your liver can take it, bro. Don't worry. We got liver cleansers for you, man. You just come down there. We'll take care of your liver. Don't worry about that. I'll give you an IV. You'll be fine. Yeah. Worst, yeah. worst yeah. comes to worst comes to worst. I start an IV line on you. You're fresh to go to, in in an hour. So done. Done. I love it. I yeah, drank that- there and hours that I've never thought I was going to drink, man. Like 18, 20 hours straight, and like the next day you're ready to go again, man. I don't know how I do it, but you know, for some reason or another, I just do. I don't know what it is. On, on, on the way home Sunday morning, my liver was punching me in the face, but yeah. I was like, all right, I'll deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one other thing that we have coming up uh, oh. next Monday night. Um, we have Scott Pierce and Josh Haberski from the Premium Cigar Association. 
and we're going to dive into this fantastic uh, court ruling um, that ruled against the FDA and in favor of the premium cigar industry. So that's some very, very good news for the premium cigar world and for those of us that love these cigars. So tune in to hear more about that from Scott and Josh on next week's show. Uh, we have plenty of other awesome shows coming up in the course of the next few months. Um, so I just want to say again, on behalf of myself and all of our viewers, um, gentlemen, thank you so much for coming on and sharing these stories. Well, we thank you for having me, man. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If I could say just one thing. Please, yeah. From that day, two years later, I, I don't know if you guys could really see it. Yeah. If I could turn my arm. That was the cross that I was speaking about. And I got it tattooed on my arm as a remembrance of that day of my friends and colleagues that I lost that day. Yeah, it's it's important to remember. And um, because, again, as horrible as everything was that happened there we have to pull the good out of it yeah. somehow so and 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 raul thank you uh, obviously for you know your perspective as um you know being on the job as a minneapolis firefighter you know and having grown up in new york you know it's a place that you love and you still have family there yep. so from yeah, my fun. perspective, thank you, Raul, for your service. And Frank, thank you yeah, for your thank service. You. Yeah. yeah, likewise, guys. Listen, if you're ever in the neighborhood, Raul, you come visit us. We'll we'll take care. We could we will take you to our clubhouse. Uh, you know, I'll have your smokes and then we'll take care of you, man. Love yeah. to hear that, brother. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank man. you. Absolutely. Anytime, brother. Extended you, invitations, <laughs> extended invitations for both of you guys. Yes, sir. You both come down, we'll take care of you in New York style. You'll you, you'll do fine. You'll go back 20 pounds heavier. Trust me. Love it. That happens all the time when I go to New York. Love it. Oh, yeah. No worries. We'll, tell you, we'll feed you well, man. Yeah. Frank, we'll make sure that, that Carl makes some Paisan pockets for them. Oh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> that, they'll never forget that. That's a lifetime experience right there, man. I'll yes, tell you. Yes, it is. Done. Yep. Done. Well, guys, hang out in the virtual green room. Uh, we're going to say our goodbyes to our audience. Um, thank you so much to all our viewers and listeners. Um, if you were listening on the audio podcast, thank you so much for being a, the best part of how about that cigar live. We really appreciate you guys listening. And if you were watching live, thank you so much. And thanks again for those of you who watched the after effects broadcast on our YouTube channel and our Facebook page. We really appreciate you guys always, uh, be sure to like, and subscribe and do all those things you know on our channels smash that like smash button. that like button and the things that all the young people say these days um and make sure you uh hit the bell so you don't miss any of those yeah. new episodes and all that stuff uh we have some we have a lot of our pca stuff starting to get slowly uploaded to tiktok justin's been absolutely killing it putting all our pca Always. stuff on instagram uh so check that out and justin's my hero speaking of tiktok and instagram you can find us on all your favorite social media platforms at HBT Cigar. If you have questions, you can email us on the website, howaboutthatcigar.com. And of course, as we say every time, until we see you next time, burn cigars. Not bridges. Thanks, guys. 
Any comments, opinions, viewpoints, or statements presented or uttered by guests on the HBTC podcast, HBTC live video streams, and all other media from HBT Media LLC are solely those of the individual and do not necessarily represent the opinions or viewpoints of How About That Cigar or its parent company, HBT Media LLC, any of our advertising partners, or the premium cigar industry. The primary purpose of How About That Cigar is to entertain and to encourage activity and growth within the community of people who enjoy or want to learn about the enjoyment of premium premium cigars.